My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. And today we got a good one for you. Ken and Carol Duvall hail from Australia, but don't spend much time there anymore. Stick around for more. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course... Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Greg W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lanfear. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmutz. Brett Dark. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rush. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hey, I'm Carl Parker from ADV Moto Magazine, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Camel ADV Products is the maker of ultra-durable, high-quality auxiliary fuel tanks for motorcycles. They fit into existing space, which means you keep your stock tank. And the auxiliary tanks also help spread the weight out on your bike. I mean, if you think about it, if you take off your stock tank and you throw on a huge aftermarket tank, there are so many things going on here. You've changed so so much of the dynamics of the bike. First, the physical size of the bike changes, but also you've got this added weight of all this extra fuel. And if you don't fill it up all the time, there may even be a slosh factor. You know, if you have it half full, how much can the fuel move around? And you're talking a lot of fuel at that point. And how does it affect your ride? The camel tank puts the weight toward the back of the bike and you only put fuel in it when you need the extra range. If you don't, you just ignore it like it's not even there. When you use it, it transfers the fuel without pumps or priming, no messing around. Once it's set up, it's sort of done. You don't have to worry about it. www.camel-adv.com. And remember, when you're dealing with camel tank, you're dealing with Corey Hansen. He's the owner of Camel Tank. And he's a rider and a traveler just like you, a motorcycle enthusiast. As a matter of fact, he formed this company because he went out on a trip and didn't have enough fuel in his bike all the time. So check out what Corey has at Camel Tank. And of course, anytime you're dealing with him, let him know you heard him here on Adventure Rider Radio.
Well, coming up in a few minutes, you're going to meet Ken and Carol Duvall from Australia. And Ken and Carol start out like a lot of travelers you hear on this show. They go out and they start, they do a little trip, and and then I guess they sort of get carried away. They, they fall in love with it. The neat thing about Ken and Carol is, well, first of all, they're not maintaining a blog. They're not doing a YouTube video. Or what their essence, though, of what they're doing is friends, making friends. And when you listen to the way they talk about it, it's all about making friends. And the friends are really what makes them rich. They don't have a home that they could call in the traditional sense of the word. Their value in travel is the friends they make and they keep for life. I managed to get a hold of Ken and Carol Duvall in Australia while they stopped for a short time. They've been riding their 1981 BMW R80 GS in which they've covered over half a million kilometers or maybe even a lot more than that by now. And they're a year nine on a six or seven year trip. That says something right there, doesn't it? Hello, my name's Ken Duval. Um, I'm retired. Uh, we're just traveling the world at an extremely slow pace with my wife on the back, and this is my wife. Hi, I'm Carol Duval, uh, born and bred in Brisbane, Australia. And yeah, so we quit work um, in 2007 and been traveling since then permanently, so well. We don't have children, we don't have pets, we sold our house and just hit the road. Well, Ken, Carol, great to have you on. Yeah, good you've been, to talk to you. I've heard about you guys for a long time. The names keep popping up in the travel circles, but you guys aren't really that into social media. You're not writing books. You're not making movies, but you're traveling the world. Yeah, well, the social media thing is an access uh, we've been employing a lot lately just to keep communicate with friends. So really... Uh, the blog has gone by the wayboard, you know, much to Grant's disgust, but oh, one yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, we're about five years behind in our blog, unfortunately. Um, we just prefer to be out traveling than writing about it. Um, we keep a, a, a personal diary for ourselves, uh, but, yeah, we just be, want to be in that moment of traveling rather than sitting behind a computer all the time. Yeah. So but we use a computer to, like Ken says, to keep in contact with other travellers because we do like to socialise when we're in different countries, meet up with a lot of local people and uh, also different other travellers that are happen to be in the same area as us. How did you get started on the whole travelling thing? Where did, where did all this begin? So I was always a motorcyclist, and this is BC, before Carol. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was a long time ago. Uh, and I had visions of traveling around Australia on a motorcycle one day. Um, Carol and I met in 1983. I just finished a couple of uh, dirt rides to Cape York, the northern pointy bit of Australia, and I was already planning a trip around Australia uh, on on a motorcycle, Uh, and it was at this point that I uh, had met Carol. And so I just got back from backpacking overseas with my high school friend. Uh, we spent 11 months, nearly 12 months in uh, North America and Europe, UK, 
And I was only back a couple of months and I met Ken. And he, he, we first first date was on a – took me out to see the motorcycle races. So it was a quick introduction to the bikes. And from there on we did lots of uh, short trips, in, you know, just weekends away and things like that. And but we went um, – he said, would you like to come around Australia with me? He says, That's, I've been planning this. You know, if you want to come, you're quite welcome to sit on the back of the bike. So I said, yeah, that sounds great because I love traveling. So we set off in 1985 and we did uh, – had nine months and we also incorporated New Zealand and they had four weeks over in New Zealand. And after that I said, we really should go overseas. You know, this is this is really fun doing it by motorcycle. It's much better than trying to carry a backpack and catch public transport around the place. So it, he said, yeah, okay, that would be, that'd be okay, you know, but we'll just probably stick to first world countries. So we started planning and reading what we could. I mean, it was just magazines back then. We had no internet. and uh, But it took us 10 years of procrastination and six months of preparation <laughs> to get going. So 1997, March 97, we actually uh, rented the house out, jumped on the uh, – flew the bike to San Francisco. So the plan was North America, uh, a trip down the Baja uh, and back, uh, and then Europe, UK, and then cut plan. The plan was to ride home overland through Asia. A very smart move, I thought, because everyone we'd met that had travelled India got sick. They got some really, really bad bugs. And if at that point we got to India and we did get sick, we would just put the bike on a plane and fly home. So that was our fear. We had this fear of, wow, it's all, all new out there and all these horror stories of getting, you know, amoebic dysentery and things like that. We thought, uh, no, we can do without that. So first world countries only. Was that, that you only, Ken, or was that Carol as well? That, that was the two of us. That was the two of us. Carol had only travelled first world countries also. Yeah, I'd only been to Europe. I, I went to Morocco. Yeah. Uh, that was about it. But apart from that, we had, you know, it was only first world mm. countries I'd been to. Uh, so we were a little bit unknown because we had no no guidebooks, we had no internet access. So we when we took off to the states, we really didn't know what we were doing. Mm. Uh, we were there was a lot of helmet slapping on Carol's behalf because I was looking the wrong way of driving on the wrong side. Mm. I was in the r- correct side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> but and we also only planned to go for about eighteen months. That was it. That was the idea. We thought we could do all this in eighteen months. Yeah. You know, that's what everybody says. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it took you longer than that, of course. Yes, oh, we yeah. were away four years, two months, and seventeen Seven. days in the end. Mm. And at that stage, we we never came home. Uh, we had very little money, and uh, we actually ran out of money very quickly. We had seven seven months in in yeah. uh, North America. Yeah, seven months and seventy thousand k's. And yeah. by the time we left North America to fly to uh, London. The UK, we had no money left, but fortunately, we I had I was able to um, get an ancestry visa for the UK, which entitled us to work. So, and it was coming into winter. It was November, late November, when we flew into um, into London, and we just uh, we got a pub job, running a pub in London over the winter, and that sort of paid for our next summer of travelling. So we ended up working two winters in England and then uh, to, to pay for t- mm. um, two summers. and to, to show you how things changed, while we were in the States, we met a, a friend of a friend, an American guy in California, who talked us into doing a full loop of Mexico. Guatemala and, and Belize. Guatemala and Belize in 30 days. 
So we went down the Baja, jumped over from La Paz to Los Mochos, around the coast uh, into Guatemala, Belize, back around through the Yucatan, then up the east coast into Texas in 30 days. Why 30 days? In 30? Well, we were coming back for a a bike rally, I think. But he said, oh, you can do it in 30 days. And we were so naive. We didn't. We thought, okay, he planned it all out. He said, this is where you go. This Mm. is, you know, this is a good route. And we just, it was, we didn't know. We just thought we could do it. And we got there, we thought, this "This is is like riding nearly every day. (laughs) It was crazy. Yeah. How long did it take? Um, I don't know. We probably suppose we did it. We did it in about 30 days. Maybe maybe we took just over 30 days. I'm not quite sure. So we ended up in Brownsville, Texas, you know, and I thought that was absolutely crazy. So then we rode across uh, from Brownsville to the to the west coast, and then up the west coast to Alaska to Prudhoe Bay, and back down uh, across the middle, and then down the east coast, back down again, and then uh, we shipped out of Orlando, Florida, to London. So we covered forty one states in the in, USA. In, in the USA, and we. In Canada, we, we did a loop through east and west. Yeah. So not all the all the eastern eastern states, but uh, definitely a couple of those. Yeah. So well, that'll certainly it drain was, your pocket by, pocketbook fast. Oh, it? oh, it did. Yeah. We so were camping. Gasoline then was a dollar a gallon. Yeah, and we did a lot of camping. Yeah, camp ninety nine percent of the time. And uh, you were, you were Ken was a member of the. Um, BMW Club of, of uh, America. Owners of America, BMOA. Yeah. So that was that was a, a good resource there because we could, you know, if we needed to do a service at some of these places or something like that because you can't just dump your oil anywhere. anywhere. Um, so that yeah. was that was a big help. Mm. So. What do you do for camping? Were you wild camping or are you paying at campgrounds? No, no, no. We don't wild camp. We pay for the pay for the facilities of toilets and showers. Right. So – um, and plus, we didn't really know about too much about wild camping back then. No, no. I mean, no, yeah, because camping's so expensive now. I mean, you know, the, a lot is. of the parks yeah. here, boy, it's, you'll spend thirty six dollars a night sometimes, depending on what you're doing. In uh, Georgia, this last trip, well, we had uh, four or five years in the in the states. This this leg, and we were in Georgia, and we were heading to Savannah on the coast. Carol looked up the net. The campground was forty dollars US. For $41, we got a Motel 6 with breakfast and Wi-Fi. Mm, but you had to pay that extra dollar. Uh, you had, you had to pay that extra dollar. <laughs> and it was wet. It, and the conditions were wet. You pay the dollar. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but back in 97, I think um, most were 7 to $12, $10. I think, a night. We did stay in one state park in along the coast of uh, south of San Francisco. Yeah. And it was $25 a night. We thought if we got to pay that every night, every night we're going to run out of money really quickly. But fortunately, that yeah. was probably one of the, the dearest we ever stayed in. Yeah. The, the, we, did do, we did buy a National Parks Pass, which was a godsend. That was fantastic for the USA. But uh, Mexico, it was all hard-roofed accommodation. But it was very cheap. It was five bucks a night in those days. So that was really quite cheap. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was entertaining to say this. And when we arrived in London, that was just – we were getting 35p to our dollar and you had to spend a pound like you spent a dollar. Mm. That was just crushing, absolutely crushing. 
So it's now at the moment about 66, 68 P to the Australian dollar. So it's a little bit better, but not, not great. Well, it's almost double. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's still not great. <laughs> so that's really, really, and the you know, UK and Europe is just so expensive. Uh, but, uh, so you ended up doing 200,000 kilometers on that first trip. Yes, yes. Well, we went further than we ever expected. Way further. You know, because we, we never planned to do Africa. Ah, yes. And that's, so we, we met friends of friends in England, uh, a couple called Mark and Carol Jay. They had traveled around the world from 1980 to no, 80, no. Oh, sorry, 1990 90, to 94. 94. Yeah, four years. Four years on an R80 GS2 up. And they set off from England across Europe and then tackled, uh, went down through Algeria. They went through Algeria. Days. They started in Algeria and they were two up riding across Sahara. And he didn't realize that two up riding in sand is, you know, crossing dunes near impossible. It's near on impossible. His poor wife was pushing the bike everywhere. So he decided to put it on a truck and then he did Africa from top to bottom. I mean, we looked at ourselves and said, we are crazy for not even thinking about it, you know. Um, and he said, it's all doable. They free camped everywhere through Africa. Um, and I said, well, we won't free camp, but we can get accommodation. So you always look at it and said, will you ever be back this way again? And I said, well, probably not. Little did we realise. Well, at that stage we weren't sure we would do another trip. Uh, but we we thought we'd go the easier route, which was down the uh, east coast, and we took six months to, to travel through Africa. Yeah, so we – yeah, so – that was not in our legs. So that was six months. Then we came, we flew from Durban to Athens uh, and then rode across Asia back to Indonesia and then caught a flight from Bali to Darwin and that was the home leg. That took us 12 months to do that, just to do that uh, landing in Athens in June to landing in Darwin in June the following year. So... It's a very, very slow ride, in our, and by most people's accounts, because a lot of people do this in about three or four months. So, so on that first round-the-world trip, uh, like I mentioned, the 200,000 kilometers, and, and we talked about you were four years, two months, 17 days. When you come back, yeah. what do you do then? Shell-shocked. I mean, you just, you've just been traveling. Have you, you, it's like four years a long time for anything, and you've been traveling for four years. You guys are different people when you ride yeah, back I was, home. I was, I was a little bit zoned out uh, when we landed in Darwin because Carol said, you know, as we get to a border, she would say the next country is and she would reel it out. Um, we have a uh, system. Uh, I'm the rider. She's the navigator. So we have a Bluetooth intercom now. Uh, we had a corded intercom cording, back then. But she always did all the mapping and uh, no GPSs, although do we, we do have a GPS now. But she can't relinquish those reins of being the navigator. She is always in control. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it was a bit of a shock to Ken because he kept saying when we landed in Darwin, he says, no more countries. That's it. It's he all said, over. I just can't believe there's no more countries. And it was really – I think you've probably found it harder than I did because I'd been away before and had to come home and deal with getting a job and sort of trying to fit back in. Mm. But I have to admit being away four years was a lot harder and doing something more completely different because a lot of people backpack – but there weren't too many people that were riding motorcycles around the world that we knew in Australia at that time. So it was all a bit different and, and you come home and you talk to your friends and it's like they'll, they'll listen for maybe five, ten minutes but then this, 
subject to change to what's happening in the house or the family or the children and and different things. So you feel felt a little isolated, yeah. I guess. Yeah. But then en route back to Australia, probably in Southeast Asia, we started planning about our second trip. Carol said, I would prefer to travel than have to have a family. And I said, I'm okay with that, you know. So when we got back to Australia, we decided to open our house to travelling motorcyclists. So we were home for six years and in that time we had 60-plus bikers, uh, bicycle riders, even people in vans. Four-wheel drives. Four-wheel drives. Stay with us. So first off it was all the people we met coming across Asia. They all eventually got to Australia and, and then to Brisbane and stayed with us. So that was great. So that sort of kept the the momentum going, you know, the enthusiasm. Mm. And then uh, later on we would search it when, once Horizons got going with the e-zine, I would search out who, who was coming this way either from South America or Europe or Asia or wherever and email them direct and say, look, if you get to Brisbane, come and stay with us. You know, you've got a roof over your head, whatever you want to work on, your bike or car or whatever it might be. So that was really great. We really enjoyed it. We had Ten Simon come and stay when he was doing his second RTW. trip around. Doing uh, his stupidest travels. So we have a lot of friends um, who stayed with us in Australia after crossing Asia, even coming from South America, who are now friends for life. Um, and now we visit a lot of those in Europe. A lot of Germans stayed with us, a lot of Germans. So we just drop in and spend a couple of days with them saying, well, you know, thanks for putting us up for a couple of days and we just leave and go to the next one then. So it's just pretty handy in the European cost scheme of things. But, oh, yeah. Um, and, and you while you're do, meeting all these people, you're sort of still scheming and planning to go on your next trip. Yeah, it's, oh, yes. it's, it's, it's still very difficult because as they departed, I would sort of find problems with their bikes so they could actually stay a little longer. <laughs> so they would arrive and say, so how long do you want to stay? And they'd say, oh, just a couple of days, you know. And I would say, so where are you going? And they'd say, oh, we're going to the outback. And I would start going down and picking their bikes apart saying, you need to get that sorted before you get out there. You need to do this. You need to consider doing this. And you know, they, cause all, then they would find all these issues wrong with their bikes. Two to three days, I could minimum get them out to two or three weeks. So. <laughs> it was a bit like Hotel California. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you so, can check in but never leave. Uh, yeah, the right. house was big. The house was not big. We only had a, we had a pergola downstairs, like a covered area. Um, and we would have to put uh, a long table out, like a piece of uh, particle board on a t another table, eight by four, and that was our table. And we had so many wood-fired barbecues because we just couldn't fit them in upstairs. But uh, it was a good social social thing, very, very good. What so, were you guys doing for a living at this point? Uh, at one point, Carol was the only one working. I had difficulty getting a job because of my age. I was, uh, you know, over that 45 bracket oh, yeah, or something. Yeah. Oh, you're over 50, were you? Might have been, no, I wouldn't be that old. No, right? no, maybe not. Maybe no. not. So, um, um, I worked in an office for a, a big electrical company, so it was, retail company. So, mm -hmm. and you were you did a couple of different jobs until you sort of I got into career driving, career driving yeah. like like UPS contractor, like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, then the hardest thing for us, for me though, was when the drivers decided to uh, the riders left us and we'd walk down our driveway, all their bikes were loaded up and we would get, put our arm around each other and wave goodbye to them and then, and I'd say to Carol, I said, one day this will be us. 
because it was just so difficult to say goodbye. We have a German couple who stayed with us for three months. Oh, they were like children oh. to us. <laughs> no, it was great. Yeah, that's a long time. They wanted to stay as long as they, you know, as long as they yeah. could. And they actually ended up immigrating to, to, to Australia, Australia and they lived not that far away in mm. uh, outside of Brisbane. Uh, quite so what, extraordinary. what gave you the, the boost yeah. then, or what was it that that day where you did pack up your bike and go off on your second round the world trip, what made that happen? This was, the, the second one was far more structured and organized. It was definitely, uh, we have this goal and we decided to go in September 2007 and that was it. Um, we just said, right, on this day, it was very, very organized. Is that because um, you know what you're doing at this point? Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. And we were, at, we were on the internet and we had contacts everywhere. So yeah. this thing, it has made life very, very easy. It's taken, I would say, a lot of the challenge out of work, at riding, but then it's definitely more fun You can because you have so many people that will help you out. And when you get to a country that has, you are in contact with locals, they know more about their country than you will ever, ever find out. You know, they can take you places you never even dreamed of existing. Like we rode roads in the USA that aren't even on a GPS, you know. It's really quite extraordinary. So I always lean on, well, we always lean on local knowledge as, as best we can. That's the people that you've met throughout, uh, you know, your, your travels. Well, those are the people well, you talk about. We've met on the travels, and other ones we meet through Horizons. Uh, you know, if we if sometimes I'd email the community and say we're passing through. Uh, is there any anything we should see, or you know, recommend recommended places? Okay. And you know, quite often we get replies that way. And then also in like in Brazil, we met um, a couple, a Brazilian couple on a bike in Argentina, and we they said you've got to come and visit us. So we did. And then they put us in contact with their bike club. And all through Brazil, we were meeting meeting different people all, all the way up from their bike club. And that was great fun. That's I mean, what we you did on your to... second trip. But did you do that in the first trip as well? No, uh, not as much, not no, as much. because we didn't have that contact. You know, it was only, only the network. 2000 and, uh, no, sorry, 1999 that we got internet. And because we weren't really, we didn't know that much about it. It yeah. was a little harder. It was probably only maybe... 2000, I think after we come out of yeah. Africa, we yeah. started using a lot more. We're starting to find out how it all works because yes. we're in um, Istanbul and we're riding, riding into Istanbul, remember? Yes. And a couple of guys from South Africa we'd, we'd met in Africa. In Sudan. They, they saw us riding in, so they sent us an email. They said, look, we saw you riding in. This is where we're staying. Let's meet up. And that was the first bit about getting in contact with people. And then we, we would coordinate then with other people we met along the way. We're going to be here. Let's meet here or, you know. And so across Asia, we, we sort of uh, mm. met a lot lot more travellers. Mm. I have to admit that uh, in, the, in the America, in North America, um, we rarely came across travelling motorcyclists. Um, in Europe and UK, the same again. But crossing Asia, a well-beaten path from Europe, UK, across to Australia, we came across a lot. And also in uh, Nairobi. Oh, yeah, Nairobi campground, yeah, yeah. We saw a lot there. So, but otherwise, Europe, not You, you not rarely to, see. No, you know, and we, we, we uh, yeah, we didn't actually meet a lot of travellers no. and they weren't, as now when we stop and 
people will come up and talk to you. I, I don't know. There must be just a lot more people traveling these days, there I is. think. There is definitely. And more open to talking to you when you when you stop. We're in Af- in a, um, sorry, Europe, we'd stop and and not many people would come up at all. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was different. I think it's different traveling now to back then. Yes. So. Yes. And I much prefer it now in the, in the way that we can contact uh, communities or bike clubs. It's much easier. Yes, exactly. And when you say people traveling, you're talking about motorcycle specific. Yes, yes. Yeah, motorcycle specific, yeah. Although we do have a lot of motorcyclists who are reaching that age where it's getting too much now. We've switched to an RV. What was oh, that age? By uh, 60 plus. <laughs> it's at the age 60 plus. <laughs> 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 so uh, the, a lot of the bicycle riders, when they get to the 55, 60s, say the legs can't do this anymore, we're getting an RV. So well, No, no, they skip this step. When you, when you ride a bicycle, you go to motorcycle, doesn't it? That's, that's right. That's right. a given. So they're old enough to get a motor now. Get one on a motorcycle. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Chris and Aaron Ratto, I'm sure you know those guys. They, they, they were in their 4x4 four, four four in Africa at the moment. Uh, which yeah. it looks very appealing for Africa, I must say. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's he, they were in Atosha the other day in uh, in Namibia with some great shots of lions, very close to their four by four. Wow, very yeah. very close. So, well, but, um, this the second trip, um, you you planned it and you said it was well planned or oh, yeah. more structured than the first trip. It was planned to be yeah. six or seven years. How long did it take you? Uh, well. We haven't finished yet. We're well, well into our tenth. <laughs> Ten years. So there was a slight miscalculation there as far as how long it would take you. Well, you, well, you yes. expect things to happen as it rolls out. The, the first hiccup in South America was the Dakar came to South America. Now I had visions of following this race in Africa when we got to uh, Europe, Africa. On your bike. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, just just not on their yeah. route, but me be in places where you could see them come through. You, oh, you followed on the main road. You travel with the transport vehicles, the backup vehicles. Mm-hmm. So when it came to in two thousand and nine, when it came to South America, we said this is just too good to be true. And we met people who did this. They chased the Dakar on the highway, and you you drive ride with the trucks. And then also when the the bikes are doing their liaison section. They're usually on the highway as well. So you're you're riding amongst the, the top riders. They're doing a little faster than us, even though they're supposed to be doing the speed limit. <laughs> uh, but so that's good. And then you get to the same town where they're doing the bivouac. So we, we would uh, see some of them there. So, uh, but then w- once we did that first um, Dakar, we saw it in 2009, we said, oh, we have to stay another year and see it again. That was just too good. So then we planned a route up through um, – Brazil, Brazil, uh, French, French Guiana, Suriname, Guiana, and back through uh, Brazil again, through to, onto Peru, up the Amazon, onto Peru, and back around a big loop through Bolivia, into and back to Argentina again, just so we could do another, uh, see another Dakar rally. So, so that made another year <laughs> longer. That, yeah. <laughs> so it was a standing joke in Argentina that we would never leave. So, and we probably would still be there because we just keep jumping borders to get another 90 days. And then Carol's sister put a spanner in the works by saying, we would like to visit you while you're on the road. Well, we suggested Mexico, which was a stupid thing to do because we just, no way we could we make Mexico. So he defined Cartagena in Colombia. 
and said, could you make it Cartagena? Well, we gave ourselves like, what was it, six months to get there from Argentina and people kept saying to us, you will never make this. We made it with two days to spare. So we were pretty happy about yeah. that. And this kind of travelling, we don't like. Having, having a – make a – A deadline. deadline. Mm. Do you know, when we left in 2007 Sorry. to fly to Chile, all we had planned was we wanted to go to um, Antarctica and we'd actually booked – got a really cheap deal from uh, with a company in Australia – uh, just to do the the cruise the, on the ship, uh, no airfares or anything like that. And that's the only commitment we had. We yes. wanted to be in Ushuaia for Christmas and do the Antarctic trip. And apart from that, it was open. We, we had opened up. We were just going to play it by ear where we went to. Mm. So, you know, we were a little, organized, little bit more organized with some things, but we didn't want to plan the route. Yeah. You know, we don't think we're going to be here on a day, that here on another day and mm. have every day planned out or know where we're going to stay Carol's, Carol's skill is playing the weather. This, I feel, is cool. we're not fine weather riders, but we try to aim for fine weather. And fine, a perpetually cool summer is great for us. So not too much rain, you know, and occasionally we get it wrong. Well, we got caught in a bit of snow in Chile at one stage and people said, what are you doing that far south at this time of the year? We tried not to do that again. We don't want to get caught out in snow. So most of the time we can juggle the weather and the seasons very, very well. Um, to us this is very important. Um, we explain this to people and they say, so you're a fine weather rider. Not really. I say we, we deal with rain and I've dealt with rain, but the thing is when you're riding in rain, not many people bring out their cameras and take photographs, right? Mm. You're too busy dealing with the conditions rather than sucking in the scenery. Your vision is impaired because the rain is coming down. You're not seeing the scenery. We did Norway in 1998. I have not seen a fjord. In fact, I don't think there's any there because it rained so much it was just grey the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go back to make sure they are there. Right, yeah, it's probably a marketing plot, plot right? <laughs> Put all those photos up and tell you it's there, but they know you can't see anyway. When, yeah. the, when the gas station in Oslo apologized for the summer's weather and said, I'm so sorry about our weather, this is the wettest summer we've had in umpteen years. I said, really? He said, yep. I said, yeah. the tourism is just not happening this year at all. And, and we were silly. We just kept going north when we should have just said, okay, this is going to be a really wet year. Let's go south and come back next year. Mm. But we didn't. The we next didn't year do that. was fine. The next, next year was perfect. Yeah. Had a great summer. But so we just, we're a little more wiser these days. A so lot, we, lot more. <laughs> we do try to avoid the bad weather if we can. So South America on the second trip, we blew out to three years. Uh, caught the Stahl Rat over from Cartagena to Panama. Mm -hmm and then rode up to Central America, crossing into the USA. Uh, we got our 90-day uh, visa, you know, the visa waiver system, and then flew back to Australia to touch base with family. Carol's father was ailing, and uh, my brother had contracted leukaemia, uh, but he was coming into a remission. Uh, it looked pretty good for him. Carol's father was in his 80s, 90s, something like that. So we came back with a five-year visa. So we're, well, I think we're only home two months maybe, yeah. if that. We got our visa for the USA, a proper visa, so that would let us stay longer. Mm -hmm. 
and then we went back and we, we travelled around uh, North America. So our original fast loop around the USA in 12 months, we said, well, we can just take our time now, and we did. So we spent four and a half years. We would have been three and a half, but the chance to go to Cuba came up. So we delayed another summer and went to Cuba, and, of course, we had an extra time left over, uh, extra time left over. So we went up into Canada on the eastern side and back down again. And then the following year, uh, April, May, we rode to Vancouver. 2015. In 2015, decided... uh, to catch the plane from there to Seoul, South Korea, a loop around South Korea, a ferry over to Japan, a loop around Japan, and a ferry to Vladivostok across Russia, Mongolia. No, no, None of the stands this time. We'll do the stands on the way home. And then getting out into Estonia with about two or two and a half, two or three days left on our visa for Russia, So, which was, you know, another rush trip for us, way too fast. But but with Russia, you you know you got the visa restrictions, but you also got the weather restrictions because their summer's not that long. Uh, as we left end of September, mm. and it was starting to get for us cool. We don't we don't do the cold that well. We don't well. do cold, no. So mm. uh, so it was a quick ride down from Estonia to Sicily, where the weather was fantastic, beautiful. So you you and, were on uh, this trip over nine years. You were on the first trip over four years. Where's yes. home? Yeah. Yeah, well, we don't have a house. Because you mentioned home. You said, you know, on on the way back home. I'm just thinking, like, you've been on the road a long time to have a place that you call home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're currently in Carol's mother's house with her brother. Uh, She is 90 now, uh, sadly with uh, severe dementia, and her brother is a full-time carer. So our time in Australia now is spent, Carol takes over as the carer. So, yeah, so we, we do come home for longer periods now, especially since we're in uh, uh, UK, Europe, because uh, it's not as easy to zip. In North America, we used to go down to Mexico and Central America in the winter and then only come home for maybe two months. Now we're home a little longer. I mean, last year it was like five months over, over the northern winter. This year it's a little longer because there's other issues as well. But, yeah, I also have to um, help my brother out with uh, looking after my mother and it's good time, good to spend time with her at this, uh, this age as well. Mm. So, uh, the, um, yeah, this time is so, uh, a, a bit longer too because I, I have some medical problems. Before we started our second trip, 2007, my orthopaedic surgeon told me my right hip needed replacing and I said, I'll, I'll make it last a little longer, but it's uh, a little overdue now. So I'm now back in Australia trying to get that sorted. So hopefully by May, summer next year, uh, it will be done and I'll be on the bike and we'll be doing Europe and uh, UK. We'll see what happens after that. Mm-hmm. But I suppose for me, Brisbane is is home, even though we're away a lot, only because I've been, I was born and uh, lived most of my life mm-hmm. here. Uh, and and the house we're in now is is where I grew up as well. So this still feels like home to me. Mm. Ken's a little different because you've you've I've lived no family in, lived in different places and mm, yeah, you know. So I don't know. Does Brisbane feel like home to you? Uh, probably because it's your home. You know, <laughs> um, I feel quite nomadic actually, and 
the uh, the amount of um, time I've spent away from Australia now is quite extraordinary. I, I find it quite odd when I come back. Um, there are probably preferences to live somewhere else in the world, but I would probably never do that. I would eventually end up coming back to Australia. I have no family other than distant cousins and uncles and aunt. You know, that's about all I have left now because both my parents have passed away. My brother eventually uh, died with his second bout of leukaemia. Um, we were actually in Canada when that occurred and uh, we had to fly home very, very quickly. And then a the few months later, Carol's dad passed away as well, which was we knew this was the time of our life when we would experience this, you know. And when you get to our age, it is part of something you have to uh, factor into travelling. You're going to have family members who get ill and possibly pass away. Um, very difficult sometimes, very difficult. Should we be here? Should we be there? Carol's father was fantastic. Even in his last few weeks, he said, please don't stay here on my account. He says, you are doing this fantastic journey. Get out there and do it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, But he was very emphatic about please do not stay here. Get out there and have this ride. So he was very, very encouraging. Do you guys find that it's changed you? It must have changed you in so many ways. But do you find that it's sort of your confidence in not really having a home? Like, I mean, even, even it sounds like something you don't really contemplate, even the fact that you don't have a so-called quote-unquote home. Is there a confidence or a comfort in knowing that you're, you're sort of at home everywhere? Oh, yeah. It, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. People often say to us, you know, you have how, no how, how can you travel like that with no place to come home to? And I said, well, you know, yeah. it doesn't – we don't find that a problem. And we don't really get homesick. It's very – our lives on the road are very, very full. It's, it's very, very o- occupying. Um, we have a base in the UK, uh, the friends that introduced us to Africa – they are a fantastic couple, very, very much like our own ourselves, a little bit younger, but very similar to ourselves. So, uh, and had similar situations with family, you know, uh, getting very old, passing away. It's just very, very difficult to find people that are like minded souls. Mm. Um, In the USA, we had an Australian couple that we. We um, that was our base there yes. in Phoenix, uh, in Phoenix, uh, Arizona. Uh, so it's it's good to have like that sort of base you can you can sort of come back to and and that felt like home when we we're there, you know. So mm. it's uh, you sort of got homes all around the world if you like. Yeah. <laughs> it's been some very tearful departures sometimes. You mentioned that it's very busy. Your your life is full on the road. Describe what sort of a day in the life is like for you guys. Not so much right now because I know you're you're there caring for your relatives. But let's just look at a day on the road. What is that like? Do you wake up knowing where you're going? Do you have a plan? That sort of thing. Generally, the day on the road starts the night before. Um, the iPad will come out, and Carol will be banging through some maps and things like that. And I'll be playing with the GPS, so which is a, you know, a new toy. Um, and then the map would come out and say, well, this is here, this is there, how do we link this up to make this, should we go here and have a look at this, and yeah, yeah, we can do that, yeah. So it's all about structuring the next day, you know, but then if we get to a cafe stop and we're having lunch and someone says, have you thought about going this route? No, it is a fantastic ride. The detour will happen instantaneously. So that kind of thing. Um, the day, the next day, if we're in a house, 
We get up, we do our own thing with breakfast. We do a bit of housework for the people if they, if they happen to work, you know. Um, a bit of bright preparation before we leave. Yes. I mean, we're not, I have to admit, we're not very good at leaving early unless it's, unless we have to get to a, a destination or it's extremely hot weather. Like in, in uh, northern Brazil, we would be on the road by 7 o'clock. But if it's just an average day, we're, we're not in a hurry to get to anywhere. It's not like a long day. Um, we're lucky if we leave by 10 o'clock, maybe 10.30, <laughs> very relaxed, breakfast, coffee, mm. tea, tea, cup of tea, cup of coffee, pack up, and then we just uh, toodle off and then... Um, Lunch is usually between 2, 2.30. Oh, yeah, 2, 2.30, 30, something yeah. like that. And uh, it depends where we are, wh- wh- whether it's a little cafe or we, we make our own lunch sometimes. And then um, we might stop about five. I mean, a lot of people stop a lot earlier than that, um, which is which I can see the advantages in that mm. too. But I don't know. We just tend to tend to and go till about five o'clock. And then um, if we know we're going to a particular campground or a hostel or something like that or a friend's place, that's fine. Otherwise, then you've got to um, try and hunt around to find a place to uh, to stay. Now with the uh, the internet so easy we can sort of have a look around and I might say okay I think we're going to get to this town tonight I know there's a few there's a, there's a few different accommodation possibilities and I'll probably write down the addresses or put yeah. them in the GPS and that that way uh, mm. we got some options but in in South America we mm. didn't have a GPS so we would just ride around town and try and find places you know so you'd spend a, probably 30 minutes 45 minutes finding a place that's suitable uh, priority is, you know, safe parking for the bike. Um, uh, the basic accommodation is fine for us because it's only somewhere to put our head down and providing it's clean, that's fine. Food, eat off the streets, not a problem. Or cook, it depends yeah. on the country. Yeah. If it's an expensive country, we try to go to the supermarket mm. and make our own food. Mm. If it's a very cheap country and it's reasonable to eat out, mm. we, we might eat out. So. Yeah. Do you find it stressful travel- when you're going around looking for a, a place to stay in that 30 or 45 minutes? Sometimes, Sometimes yes. Because yeah. I'm the one. Ken sits on the bike. He's just got to do the riding. I said, I've got to take all my gear off, go in. Try and work out the language if I can't speak the language and, yeah. and indicate that oh, I want a bed for the night and safe parking for the bike and then I want to look at it and how much and that and then come back and if that's not good, then we've got to go on to the next place mm. and I've got to do the, all that over again. So by about the fifth or sixth place, if it happens to be that way, sometimes you, you, you luck out and it's the first place is fine. But by the time you get sometimes the sixth place in, you really feel a bit stressy. Yeah. <laughs> the um, yeah. the but, other thing is too, we have a little agreement. If either one of us is uncomfortable with the area or the place, right? If only one of us is, a, it's a no-go situation. You have to use your sixth sense about this kind of thing. If you say, "Look, I'm really, I feel it's fine. I think you're being paranoid." Well, we never say that. We always say, if you're uncomfortable here, we're going somewhere else. If only, and that's only one of us. So you, have both, you ever had it before where one of you says something and like maybe before you came up with this and you learned a lesson? Well, uh, not really. No, I don't think we've, we've ever. We've always had this agreement. If one of us is not comfortable, because if one of us is not comfortable, that other one can make the other one very uncomfortable. Yeah. I think there was only, we had to stay in one place in Libya. Oh, I yeah. can't remember the name of we the town. We were both uncomfortable. <laughs> We're both uncomfortable there, but there wasn't anywhere else to stay. This was the only hotel in this little town in Libya. 
which I can't think of the town, unfortunately, now. And there was, was a huge thunderstorm coming. So the parking for the bike was great. It was in the foyer. It was a nice-looking foyer, but the room was absolutely disgusting. No lock on the door. Uh, Peter and Kay Forward had been through this town, had a look at this hotel and decided, no, they would not stay there, and they ended up camping yeah, out in the, on the, in the desert. Well, unfortunately, because of this huge storm, we didn't. We had no choice. We had no choice, so we stayed there, and it was it was uh, probably the, the worst hotel we had ever, ever stayed in. <laughs> <laughs> Cleanliness uh, structurally was very unsound. The glass wasn't in the door that went onto the balcony, and the wiring uh, was just hanging down. We had a lightning strike that ran down the wiring that lit our room up in bright blue, and then exploded down down the end of the line somewhere. It was really quite exciting. Well, that, that's the so, stuff that makes stories, isn't it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> It was like flooding in the streets. It was uh, – Yeah. We couldn't lock the door. We had a chair wedged underneath the door. There were other people staying in the hotel. In fact, the local man came up and said, sir, the hotel is not suitable for the lady. I said, oh. I know, but I have no choice, you yeah. know. Because the next, hotel, next one was like 200 kilometres away. Yeah. It was south of Tobruk. On the coast, so mm. that, um, Peter did. Peter, um, Peter and Kay Forward had crossed, I think, the year before, and they actually got to the same place. And there was one hotel in this town. He says he looked at. It, he says this was just disgusting. And he said we went out and camped in the desert. So it was interesting. What are you looking for? You know, when when you're you're talking about um, you meet someone and they say, hey, have you considered this ride? What what is your trip all about? What do you look for? What do you like to see? You know. We, we probably started out looking for monuments, important sites and things like that. And this went on for some time. But when you get there in the journey, it's all about the people. You know, and a lot of people say this now, but it is definitely about the people. Mm. I mean, we still go see, you know, see different uh, things. But, but when you get, to the, you get to the monument or you get to the site and say, wow, that is spectacular. But walking around and meeting the people. It's just fantastic. And a lot of people um, that we have met on these routes are now friends for life. And I do work hard at keeping in contact with them. So um, even when we cross Russia, um, we use the motorcycle clubs, which is, uh, you know, standard fare. They are fantastic guys. But we used an Airbnb in a place called Blagovashens on the Chinese border. In the far, far eastern Russia. It's as far eastern Russia. And this couple, their little boy, are friends for life. I mean, they went way beyond what their bed and breakfast was supposed to provide. Uh, They gave us other meals and we said, we have to pay you for this. She said, we do not do this for the money. We do this for the pleasure of meeting travellers. You know, and I thought, but we wow. were we were treated like family. I we think, were treated we? like family. They taking us around, sightseeing, everything. It was great. Yeah, you know? so it's really quite an interesting experience. And generally, this is what our experience has been. Uh, Airbnb, this international thing, we do a, a fair bit of investigating on where we stay, uh, and most of the time, we walk away with this glowing feeling of we've been treated like royalty. So no, it is a really, really different lifestyle now that we travel. We also like to learn about the the culture and history of the places yes. we go to, you know. Mm. So we we try, we you know we can't do it everywhere, but we try to do it in a lot of places, mm. don't we? That's right. Mm. You know. 
If you're not into the people, like if that's not your thing, and maybe you're the type of traveler that just wants to go and see the sights, does it come with time? Is that something you sort of learn as you go that it's actually the people that make the trip? Look, I, I, I really don't know. It's an, it's an individual thing. Um, I ha- we have friends who travel. They free camp everywhere. They miss a lot of this interaction, you know, um, but that is their style of traveling. Um, yeah, they're not they're not so social, and we and, talk about and our- He's probably not even really into seeing a lot of museums or monuments and things like that. So he's really just there likes the ride, the ride. Mm. Uh, and you know, I suppose people do it. Dif- all people do it differently. Mm. You know, um, I don't. Know, there's no right or wrong. It's yeah, uh, everyone's, but it- everybody's different. But yeah, for us, we we just enjoy meeting the the local people. Yes. And talking trying to them. interact with them yeah. yeah so um and also we camp now a lot of our friends don't camp they don't carry camping gear so and when you're two up on one by carrying camping gear is a little you know you're very hard pressed for room but uh if we got rid of our camping gear we would have so much space but we like this resource we do like this resource and we used it in mongolia so but uh, you know, and we will use it in Europe because of the uh, uh, for economics mainly. Uh, um, but also, it's an interaction. You do meet a lot of people camping. So and when you say camping, very, you're talking about campgrounds. You're camp talking campgrounds, and um, now not free camping. Now the, these people we know, they went through Japan and free camp through Japan. I could not do that because they yeah. said they they. Didn't have they hardly had any interaction with people, and I said, "Wow!" Apart from maybe at the when they're paying for um, petrol, gasoline, um, or food. Food, that's at it. At the supermarkets, yeah. but that's that's probably all. Where we we stayed with with some local people, uh, a couple of Airbnbs. Yeah, some some bike riders that we knew, uh, HU community people. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so yeah, it was good that way. Is that part of your route planning when you're when you're looking for somewhere to go and you know you're going to head towards this town, city, or area or whatever? Do you immediately get on the internet then and, and sort of reach out like you were saying earlier, check the communities, um, and, okay. and try and connect with other riders? Yeah, um, not every time, but but a lot of the time. A lot of the time. Well, yes. Um, Carol got a, a Facebook request, friend request from a guy in Ulaanbaatar. Right? Didn't request me, requested her. <laughs> Uh, he spoke reasonable English. We could, he could interpret. He was always complaining about his poor English. But we had some bike issues, and this guy was absolutely fantastic. He would come and pick us up in the morning, and he would run us all over town looking for parts, bits and pieces, bike shops, everything. Every day he would say, he would ring us up and say, do you need me today? I can do this, 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 right? And he was just ever so helpful, and then we went back to his wife and two children for, 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 dinner. for dinner. And I said, I need to bring something. No, 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 he said. And then he apologised for his apartment because it wasn't that palatial. And I said, it is a palace, really. Trust me, you know. And he said, it was just the most beautiful thing. And this was a Facebook request to Carol. And Carol said, do you know this guy? I said, No. He's a friend for life, this guy. I talk to him all the time on the internet. (laughs) So, you know, it's just the social media now has opened so many doors. We would never have met this guy 
other than through a Facebook request. Well, what do you so, do with social media? Are you posting regularly where you're riding and different pictures and things? Well, you know. Well, we, we, we try to do a little more on that. Um, we have a Facebook page, Life on a Bike. Mm-hmm. So we do try to post where we're going on that since our blog is not so up to date. Uh, and I, we also I have take, have a page each you know, as well. Yeah. I take the blame for the Facebook page. I mean, not the Facebook, the um, HU site. Well, you're blog. not that far behind. What did you say, five years or something? That, that won't Only take five long. years. Only five years. I like your confidence. <laughs> <laughs> You've only got, I, think well, I would think, a couple hundred hours worth I, of work, I would bet. I have, have 7,000 words written and edited, ready to go up on Central America. And then uh, then I've got to do five years of North America. Well, that's going to be a, a summary, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Ken, you have, you have moved forward, though. You're not writing that on paper and then leaving it for Carol to input, are you? Oh, no, 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 no. no. I, I type two fingers. Ah, oh, that's good. That's, that's done fast. Yeah, I'm rapid. <laughs> what are you riding for a bike? Uh, 1981 R80 GS. Uh, it's pretty well long the tooth. It's granddad's axe. It's had head replacements and handle replacements, but it still goes. So um, Everyone says, is there any original parts? Not many. Not many. <laughs> it's got to have over 500,000 kilometers on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, between Carol and I, uh, we've probably done 500,000 between the two of us, the two up on the bike, This and that's international travel, right? In Australia, it's probably around this, you know, 650,000 mark. Uh, it's got about 900,000 Ks on it. Wow. Because we, we bought it secondhand in, I, I think it was two, uh, 1988. 1988, yeah. yeah. So, so it, the bike had originally come from England to Australia and we bought it here in Brisbane. Yeah, probably had about 150,000 Ks on it then. And then uh, we went overseas, uh, put another 200 on. And this journey we've done about 270, 275. So, but uh, before we left the USA, I put new barrels and pistons in. So I'm good for at least another half a million. How much further do you think you have to go before you get your money's worth out of that bike? Uh, it's paid for itself three times over. And the damn <laughs> thing's increasing in value. I can't believe it's this. It's increasing in value. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about our bike. The R80s are, but I'm not sure about our bike it's... with all its patches and welded frames and... <laughs> <laughs> so clearly there's no there's no plans to get a new bike then. Oh, no, no. Look, that would take $20,000 out of our budget. Mm-hmm. But is that the you only know, reason? Isn't there, a, isn't there an attachment? I mean, I'm like this. I, I love something that's well worn in, and clearly this is beyond yeah. worn in. We are super comfortable on the bike, and, you know, I ride a, a newer bike. They are so much better. I mean, oh, handling sure. technology has raced away. You know, it is really an arcade. It's a tractor compared to what the new bikes are. But it's your tractor and you you know you know the ins and outs of it. You can fix it on the side of the road most of the time. <laughs> Some days it takes me a while. And plus, you know, I mean, we, we hope to never have to do this, but if we had to walk away from it, we could. Yeah. If, if it was in a circumstance where, you know, you're held up or whatever, I don't know. Hopefully we never come to that. We've yeah. had any problems like that. But it's not a, a $20,000 bike, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's emotionally, it, it's, it's, we'd never like to lose it. Yeah. But value-wise, um, yeah, I, no, we'll always have it. We never sell it. Mm. Uh, we na- have to try and find a museum that wants yeah. to take it, I think, in the end. <laughs> Do you interview many people who name their bikes? Yeah, that seems to be a common theme. Yeah. 
you're, you're looking at a couple that don't. If I call it something, it's usually a swear word. <laughs> it's just the bike. <laughs> it's just the bike. So it's got no name. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I've never ever ever named my bikes, whether he or she. So it's always it. The bike is it. So, um, interesting. Uh, I have a top box, uh, which is 60 litres. Um, the box is my second one. I bought the second one in the USA, the first one in Australia for our first trip. It's a, an action packer made by Rubbermaid. Oh, I know the one. Yeah, and it cost me $20 US. Um, in I think it was Walmart or somewhere like that <laughs> in 1997. It's on the bike now. It's from '97. Uh, you still have it now. I still no, have it. Well, yeah. the the we, we're on our second box. Yeah. The other box is okay. It just had a little bit of a tear on the in the base on the base where it bolts to the aluminium plate. Not not a very big one, but the handles were red mm. plastic handles that we used to put a padlock through, and they actually got sun. Some sun damage. So we this time you, you put a new box on before we started this trip. Yes. And you painted those handles to try and keep the UV from destroying yeah. the plastic. Now I contacted Rubbermaid while we were in the States and said, do they make this box in this size because I can't find them anymore? And the girl said, I'm sorry, we don't make that size anymore. They and make a smaller one or a, or a taller one. Or a larger one. one. And yeah. I said, well – the box is fine, but can you send me some handles? We don't sell the handles. So this box will have to do till the end of the journey. Mm. So That's the 60-litre one. 60 litres, yeah. Mm. yeah. So that has our house in it. It has tents, sleeping bags, uh, mats, first aid kit, and we have two aluminium stools. Aluminium? You say aluminium or aluminium? Aluminium. Aluminium. Okay, aluminium stools. Um, they're like about probably 400, 500 grams each. They're very, very light. So, and they just sit in the top box. And in the lid, I carry a fly, a pole full of fly, a couple of umbrellas. Little and, tiny ones. And some rock straps. And that's basically it. And inside the, the box is uh, power points to charge computers, batteries for intercoms, that type of thing. It's pretty basic. So, the setup we have is almost identical to our first trip. The pannier size has increased dramatically. We have gone from 36-litre plastics to 41-litre plastics and now to 50-litre aluminiums. Wow. So Why is the that? Load, we're getting older. We need creature comforts. Mm. <laughs> what, are, what are Hang on. What are creature comforts? <sighs> Laptops. Laptops. I mm. charges. Charges for the cameras. Yeah. So we carry um, – I used to carry a digital um, SLR camera. Um, I've only this year uh, tried going with a, a newer, smaller camera, um, which is which has been okay. Yeah. But Ken likes to have a camera himself and we have a GoPro. So we've got three cameras, uh, two laptops, um, well, a yeah. laptop and an iPad. Mm-hmm. Phone. Yep. I mean, technology, I don't know. Is it good or bad? <laughs> it makes yeah. you wonder, doesn't it? We have to make all the space for it. But you just mentioned you have video cameras and you have cameras. What are you doing with all those photos and videos? Yeah. Yeah. 
It's for old age in the yeah. nursing wow. home. Have you, you know? got your work cut out for you? Think about it. Now you're over five years, somewhere around five years behind in your blog. And on top of that, you've got video to edit and you've got photo. Oh, wow. you got a lot of work. I will be occupied for two years. Not you. It's me. I do all that. You- uh, yeah, I do. We try and edit the, the photos to a degree just mm. by sorting them out. If I want to do anything with them, then I'll go and maybe crop them or whatever. I don't do much else with them because I'm not really – I don't really know how to do a lot with them. Uh, but the video, yeah, we have to – I have to sit down one day and really have a look at video editing because I'm, I'm not – Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't really know how to do that. Yeah. With the blog, I write the words, Carol does the photos. Mm. And then we pick out probably 200 photos to go on the blog and then we have to – no, we'll get rid of that one. And we try and get that down to about 100 to 120 photos. So – that's what we need to do for this last leg of uh, Central America. Once that's done, I can post that, and then I can work on North America. So that's one of the missions while we're home to try yeah. and catch up a little bit. So. But we do try, like I say, put some photos on uh, social media. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, we've got a lot to go through. But it, I can just imagine us in the nursing home going through our photos <laughs> saying, now, I'm sure this was here and he'll be, Ken will be going, no, 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 it definitely wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> tell me uh, tell me about your story with the lion on the road. God, I wanted Carol to tell you this. She was shaking so much she couldn't get the photos off quick enough. Um, it was film days. She was at a reflex camera at the time. We met a couple driving a truck, uh, those truck camping tours, you know, and they said, look, when you go to this Makumi National Park in, Tan- sl- in Tanzania, slow down, right, because the speed limit's 70 k's. Get down to 30 and 40 because you'll see wildlife. Keep your engine quiet, you know. Well, the first thing we saw was an elephant was about no more than two metres away on the side of the road. That freaked me out, you know, I had to swerve the other side of the road. And we got down probably about a third of the way in. Uh, oh, actually preceding that, we were taking a photo of the sign entering the park and some guys came out of the park screaming out Simba, which I think is Swahili for lion. <laughs> All right, so we worked that out. We, we just waved to them and said, so oh, yeah, yeah. Of course we yeah, know yeah. there's lions. We know there's lions in there. We'll be careful, you know. Yeah. And then, so we got down the road and there's this white car parked, uh, 4x4, parked on the left-hand side of the road and right beside it is a lion, a two-year-old male lion looking the other way, sitting down looking the other way. The guys in the 4x4 put their hands out the window and waved us through. This would have put us within a metre of the lion. Of course, you know, we were not brave and stupid. We were just, I'm not going there. So we stopped a good, what would you say, 30, 40 metres away? Oh, easy. Yeah. Maybe more. And just watch this line, right? And Ken's saying, take a photo, take a photo. And I'm I'm there going, oh, I don't know whether I could take a photo. <laughs> I was shaking I so I think much. you should turn around. I think you should, we've got to turn around. We cannot face this right up. So a car came from the opposite direction and actually made the line stand up as it went past. It saw us and looked straight back at us. Now, lions, I don't think, have great eyesight. We probably look like a zebra because the bike is white. And he stood there for about maybe 20 seconds looking at us. I had already done the U-turn. I had already, already said, now, I said to Carol, take some photos. I said, because if this lion moves, 
I reckon it could cover that distance in about two seconds if he really sprung into action. So I would hit the throttle so hard I'd be away, you know. So anyway, the lion just sat down, just kept looking at us and sat down. He, he laid down. He just laid, laid down. down on the road. So Ken sort of, he spun back around to face it again. He said, oh, I don't think he's going to do anything. He's seen us. If he was going to attack, he would have attacked us. So then the guys in the 4 by 4 backed up, reversed up to us and said, do you guys want to get through? And I said, yes, we do. We don't want to sit here all day. And he said, we will go to your right and shield you from the lion and we will go through slowly together. I said, sounds like a And we'll be on the left-hand side of the car away from the line. Now, if you're going to visit the road, it's actually a a raised road by probably one and a half to two metres. It's sort of built up. So it's like a, what would you say, a concrete wall on it, a brick Um, wall. It's almost very raised. It's probably quite swampy in the area. So anyway, they shielded us and we took off then. So that was our our dealing with the lion. We never realised that there were so many there. There's a lot in this park and recently we saw a documentary that they are multiplied to the point where they're roaming outside the national park and starting to attack villages. Wow. So these days there's a lot there, a lot more than what we saw. So Mm. When was that? that would have been 2002, the year 2000. This is 16 years later. Mm. So I think I saw the, 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 the documentary, I think it was about 12, 2012, 13. So they said there were so many uh, prides of lions now. The prides are expanding. There's just not enough land in the national park, so they're moving outside. So they're talking about a cull. Mm. So, so this is the only national park with a main road through it, so you're allowed to drive in it. Drive through it. Well, it's the only national park we know yeah. of. I'm sure there's probably maybe one other, but but on our route down, it was the only one we could actually drive through. Mm. Everywhere else, you had to hire a car to go in it or do a do a uh, yeah. Tour. So there's um, plenty of plenty of uh, elephants, giraffes, zebras. Uh, yeah, we had plenty of we had um, type thing. giraffes Baboons. walk across the road in front of us further down. So. so. But that was the only line line we saw on that that trip. That was that was enough. <laughs> uh, well, to wrap things up, what I would like to do is get some tips from you guys because you have so much experience traveling for the would be traveler. And and if you could, let's maybe just break it down into first of all, just do you have some top travel tips? Top travel tips. Yeah, for somebody who's um, thinking of doing something similar to what you're doing or maybe just starting out and looking to travel. Mm. The, um, the most question, the, the, the question we get asked the most is how do we pay for it? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because I, was, I normally ask that and I was going to ask you that question, but um, I, I sort of held off. You did mention you were retired, so I'm assuming you're, you know, you're, you're getting some sort yeah, of pension or something like that. But that's a huge thing because I think so many people want to live the dream, which you're living the dream, right? I mean, everybody wants yeah. to cast off their, from their job and, and head off. So, I mean, we've come here to this now. So how do you do it? You, you don't, uh, we don't have a strict budget. But because of our, how we how we live, we always tend to fall within it. So we are just aware. Well, because you're self-funded retiree, he draws a, a, a certain amount each month. So we have to live 
on with, that on that that amount each month that has to maintain and service the bike right and generally we can have a service at the end of the year uh, 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 a, 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 a surplus at the end of the year that will give us a couple of airfares back to australia yeah so well, maybe not now we're in europe but uh, <laughs> but but so, no um i think for us it was when we first set off on in 97 yes. we had very little money and of course we we used all that in the US. In the US. And then if you're able to work as you travel, that's one one good place to uh, – you're able to live in a place for a little while, get to know other people and get to know the area as well as make some, some money. Uh, that's an option, but it depends on the country and the regulations and things like that. I mean, it's not yeah. always possible, especially once you get to an older mm. age, you know. You can't always work. If you're under 30, there's a lot more – um, opportunities to do that. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, for on the second trip, because we sold the house, we, we had a little extra money that way. So, but we still have to make that last. I mean, we just, just got to do the rest our, of our retirement. Lives. So yeah. we've got to be careful and we, you know, have mm. way we have it invested and things. But it's also just being without all the, the luxuries. A lot of people can't say, oh, I can't give up my house. I couldn't. Possibly. Possibly do without that security. And, that's fine. And that's fine. and that's that's hard. I it mean, was, it was easy for us. We didn't find it too much of difficulty. No. Um, the other thing that uh, somebody says who start travelling is say, how do you keep going so long? After three or four months, I've had enough. I need to go home. You know. And I thought, I wonder why. Then I said, well, where have you been in this time? Oh, well, I left the USA, the East Coast, right, and I went to Ushuaia in four months. You went to Ushuaia in four months in South America? Yeah. I was absolutely shattered by the time I get home. There's the problem. Slow down. Two weeks, we have to sit still for four or five days and just suck it in. But we often (laughs) travel one day, have two days stopped. You know, so we, the slower you do it, also is it, it makes it cheaper because you're not putting fuel in your bike every day. Um, it's also, you know, we we cook cook a lot of you our own meals as well. You can cook when you sit still. You know, so you can get a little extra food in, uh, and plus you you you're immersing yourself in that that area. Yeah, exactly. You, you know? immerse yourself in the, in the culture and everything like that. Yeah. In many villages in Mexico, we would just sit still for a week and just walk around and become a local. It is really you get to know everyone. It's really quite funny. So um, that slowing down, right, makes your money go further because that fuel bill doesn't happen every day, which is probably one of your major expenses. So, and if you're sitting in a place where you can actually cook a meal, you've virtually reduced your fuel, a food cost by a couple, two thirds. It's really quite cheap. Mm. So, but I mean, if people can rent a house out and get an income from mm. that, sometimes that can cover some of the cost as yeah. well as uh, savings. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's not always easy. You do have to. You know, put in those few years of work, <laughs> unless you have lots of sponsors, which um, we don't. We don't have that. We yeah. don't actively look for sponsors or anything like that. Um, we finance it in our- ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to admit, we have um, been helped out with uh, discounts on on certain things, uh, which is which has been lovely. At um, yeah, it, it's not always easy. But uh, we try to get there. Now, other tips: I think uh, don't overplan your trip. 
Yes. You got to be flexible. Uh, do some research. Yeah. But uh, and work the seasons. Yes. I, I find the seasons are the number of. Uh, there's a road in British Guiana, in Guiana, in South America. It's about 500 kilometres of rainforest road. We probably spoke to maybe six or eight people who had ridden this road. Most had to get trucked out because of the mud, right? Mm. There is a dry season and you just got to find out when it is. It's all about timing to cross that road. We had a dream ride, absolute dream ride. It was fun, absolute fun. But most of the people that we spoke to, it was the road from hell, mainly because of my guru, Carol, who juggled, you need to be in this area July, August, September, no later, you know. So mm. it's all about playing the weather. And there we actually saw two jaguars on the road. <laughs> but that's another story. But also what else? Um, weather. Yeah, yeah, we've had people that want to go to Ushuaia in, in the middle of winter, which is not a good idea. Yeah. So, yeah, weather is certainly an important, important part to play. Mm. Um, what other tips is there, Ken? Yeah. Know a little bit about your bike. If you're not yeah. mechanical, know where you can uh, access parts is another thing if you, if you do need them. Learn how to change a tyre, fix a flat tyre. That's really mm-hmm. a basic in my book these days. You need to know how to fix this. And practice in your garage. Practice in a comfort zone so that when you get out on the highway, it will be in some inhospitable place that you have to fix this, Right. At least you'll know the basics. All you have to do is deal with your environs. I think Grant Johnson says, says this on his uh, how to fix a tyre uh, thing. Learn how to do it before you get out there because then you know the basics and all you've got to do is then deal with the, you know, the flies, the mosquitoes, you know, and the mud. Mm. Uh, and also be a diplomat for your country. Oh, yeah. I think uh, – yeah. You're you're representing it, yeah. your country, when you go. So that's the impression people get. You know, they yeah. say, "Oh, if you've been really arrogant and rude. aggressive or rude or whatever," they think all Australians are like that, or all Americans yeah. or Canadians or whatever yeah. are like that. So, so we try to to respect yeah. the cultures in the country. If you know Iran, they they I had to cover up. That's fine. That's their culture. You know, so um, we try to respect, respect the that. culture and, of the land. Um, yeah. You know, if it's no drinking in Pakistan, that's fine. We don't drink. We don't have to drink. You know, it's not such a big deal. So yeah. all things like that. What, what really? do you think is your biggest asset, you know, between the two years? And, and I don't mean necessarily uh, a physical thing, but what's your biggest asset for travel? What, what's the thing that helps you get by the most? Um, our attitude and respect for each other. Uh, we have differences of opinion. There's no two ways. We don't know. But instant arguments are instantly fixed by we have to move on past this. We do not have lingering arguments or differences. So when you're living 24-7 together, um, our challenges in that regard are minimalistic. We will have a tiff, but then you just move on very quickly. It changes. You know, It's like night and day, really. We were arguing about that. It's that trivial. So people say, you know, I could never be with my wife 27 or I could never be with my husband 24-7. So, but I suppose we've just been doing it so long. Oh, we, yeah. we worked together for a number of years mm. as well So, <laughs> so <laughs> before that. But, uh, yeah. We have a group of friends that are two up travellers, one bike, uh, and they are of the similar vein. 
it's you know it's not that difficult to be in that way. So interesting. Um, also, I like to share the the responsibilities and the workload with Carol. I've met a lot of female peons who don't have to do anything. Their husband is prepared to do everything or their partner. Uh, I like to get Carol to work and I think her workload should increase over the years as I get older. (laughs) (laughs) But it also gives you a sense of being part of the trip too, of of contributing to it as well. You know, um, some people say, you know, I don't do anything on the back of the bike, I get bored, you know, so um, or I don't, you know, my husband's or partner's doing, he's doing the planning, he's doing this and that, he works on the bike, I'm just. I'm there. You know. So yeah, I like to I like to uh, contribute that way. Yeah. You know? So reading up about what we're going to see mm. or where we're going or uh, whatever it might be. Research. Planning yeah. the route. Yeah. So mm. it's a it's a partnership. Definitely a very very uh, a very strong partnership. Yeah, I suppose that's our, our asset. Yeah. yeah. Biggest asset. Yeah. Our biggest asset is well, my biggest asset is my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, Carol, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thanks to talk to you too, Jim. Thank you. Well, that was Ken and Carol Duval from Australia. And if you want to meet them or find out more about them, you're going to have to pack your bike and and try and find them on route, I think. I think that's going to be your only bet. Or maybe we'll get them back on the show another time. Yeah, I think it was last year that Aerostitch did the uh, the Zero motorcycle, the electric motorcycle they rode all winter. And they did a blog on it. And if you go to the website, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR, and always go to the forward slash ARR, go to that. With the page that opens on the top of the page on the right-hand side, there's a link there that says open the Zero Below Zero blog. Click on that link. It will take you to the Aerostitch blog. It's a wrap-up of the ride on this electric bike. Now, if you've ever been curious about what it's like to ride one in the real world, they took a bike out, they punished it, and they found what it was really like, not what the advertisement said they were. They, this is real world stuff. You can read the wrap-up paragraphs and it'll give you the idea of what it's all about. And then if you want to dig more in depth, you can find out what it was like on a, a day-to-day basis sort of as they went through the blog. It's an interesting read. And the reason I bring it up is because it's just another indicator of how into motorcycling and our industry, Aerostitch is. They're not just there selling products to you. They are part of the industry. They're riders themselves. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, when you get there, that's going to get you, that URL is going to get you either 10% off your order or it's going to get you free shipping if you're a return customer. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. We're very lucky nowadays to have access to, as consumers, to a lot of the same high-tech parts and accessories that racers do. IMS Products out of Riverside, California, takes what they learn from racing and from a whole racing tradition background, and they turn it into high-quality products that everybody has access to. Among other things, they have a complete line of foot pegs available that will give you far more control over your stock pegs. In fact, as soon as I mounted a set on my bike, I immediately felt the control difference as I rode up my driveway. So it was that noticeable. And when a product makes that much difference for me um, that fast, right away, I know I've done something right. And I spotted this quote on their website. I think this is interesting. It says, quote, so many people claim to be the best at what they do. And we don't want to say this about ourselves. We're a small family owned company trying to make a good solid part and we stand behind our products, says Scott Wright, co-owner of IMS. 
quote, we want our customers to be happy by providing them great products and we want to keep them a part of the IMS family with our strong commitment to customer service, unquote. That says a lot. IMSproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, J.J. Lewis of the Good Adventure Company is back at it again. He's raising money for the school in Bato Pilos. And to do it, he's running another trip to the Copper Canyon. The other one sounded like it was a huge success. And now we're going to get him on. Actually, we're going to get his lead guide on, which is Wheel Penders, to talk a little bit about the trip and give you an idea. Maybe you're interested in going. It sounds like it could be a lot of fun. My name is uh, Will Penders. I am uh, uh, from Washington uh, State in the neighborhood of uh, Seattle. I live in the Renton area with my uh, family. And originated from uh, the Netherlands, Europe. Uh, came over to the U.S. in 99 for a brief job. And I ended up meeting my wife here. And we're staying here. And we all settled. Will, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How did you get involved with the Good Adventure Company? We've been doing uh, quite some serious riding around here in the Washington State area, and the BDR, the Background Discovery Route, started uh, becoming popular. And we started looking into the uh, discovery routes through uh, the rest of the country. But and the next one on the list for us to do was the Arizona one, and we. This was in 2014. We we rode down with uh, a group of five, six guys from uh, this area. We rode south, and out of the blue, JJ showed up. JJ Lewis, at that time known with the Lost for a Reason. And from day one, when we met JJ and I, we uh, got along very well, and we liked his other's riding skills. We've been in contact since, uh, sharing stuff, and we, we just have the same passion. So we were right away buddies from day one. And were you a guide on that, that trip in February? On the one in February, is, that was the whole purpose. Uh, I went uh, along with uh, JJ as a guide. Uh, what I started doing for him, started uh, organizing and collected all the data from the trip before that they did. That was more or less the scouting trip uh, in 2015. He did it with four guys, uh, three or four guys. And I collected all the data, the GPS tracks, and I put this whole route together. So what's the ride like? You know, you're getting up in the morning. You mentioned, okay, you're, you're figuring out your fuel stop, which I assume is prearranged. You guys have already scoped that out. You have a good idea. But but how does the day sort of go on from there? Do you end up starting out with an objective and then end up somewhere, somewhere wildly different because of, you know, changing plans with people's riding skills or maybe difficulty in the route? So the, 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 typically we have uh, the evening before everybody retires, we set a time for the morning. Typically we say, okay, Kicks ends up at seven, so everybody's ready at seven o'clock in the morning, and it can be seven thirty or eight o'clock, but it's typically around that time. So seven o'clock is a good time to start, and then we pick a place for breakfast. Typically down the street somewhere, especially in in Mexico, is relatively easy from where we are. We grab some breakfast in the, in the local place, and then we uh, after breakfast we we go for fuel. We pick up the fuel. It's it's always you have to know where to get the fuel, and this is where we uh, get the experience in some of them. There's not even a gas station. It's, it's, it's like a like a house. And uh, one of the examples is uh, was in Batapilas. Uh, was that JJ know where this was from previous experience? 
so we went up there. And this guy along the along the road opened the hatch in his uh, his basement, and a hose comes out, and we got got the fuel. We have a writers meeting every morning where we tell everybody what the expectations are for the days, the amount the, of driving that we do, and we always give ourselves extra time because you never know what what is happening out of there. Anything and and it's not your typical from, tour, is it? Like, it's not like, you know, like a typical tour, I guess you picture being very sanitized and, and set up so that um, everything runs like clockwork. But but this is a lot of, um, I guess you guys put a lot on the riders themselves. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely not a babysit uh, trip. It's everybody has their own responsibilities. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Does everyone bring their own tools and stuff? So do they do their own repairs or do you have a, a pace truck following you or something like that? In Mexico, we will not have a pace truck because of the terrain, but also it's it's another challenge to bring this in and and have somebody following you over there. But what we what we expect from uh, from the everybody's rider is that he has for sure has knobby tires on the bike, new knobby tires. Uh, we highly recommend soft luggage uh, for the reason that if you drop your bike, that you don't first of all damage your panniers, but also don't, that you don't get your legs uh, stuck. And the potential injuries, a decent skid plate underneath the bike. That is one of the things that we require. And then, of course, your your direct tools, what you know, what you need for your bike, uh, and then uh, uh, compressor for your and spare tires and, and tire repair kits. Uh, we have plenty of that with us. It's if somebody thinks, oh shoot, I don't have this particular piece of that, we will have stuff with us. But everybody basically has to make sure that he gets out of there again when something happens to uh, for basic repairs. Hey, what do you do for comms? Are, are you guys using any sort of communication devices between bikes? Well, uh, some of us have the uh, the Lawn Enrich uh, GPS tracker. Some people have the uh, spot, but the spot is very limited. It's, it's just an emergency communication. But with the Lawn, we, we actually can send emergency uh, uh, text uh, to each other. Um, we actually, in this case, we're going to bring uh, UHF uh, handheld radios. But you're very limited with that. Uh, if you have an uh, open air connection, you are, you can go up to two miles. Some of them even go up to four miles. Uh, but you have to have an open sky. UHF is not bad. And of course, we have cell phones. But cell phone coverage is limited. But there are always locations that you could go to uh, to start some sort of a communication. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys are about to do this again. Is it in January? No, the next trip is scheduled for uh, March 4, uh, through March 4, 2017, through uh, uh, March 11. And we will be meeting again at this location with this guy we met a couple of years, uh, two years ago, actually. Uh, No, not even, it's a year ago, sorry. We we got in contact with this guy through the uh, ADV board, uh, who is an uh, ADV rider himself, and he offered uh, to use his ranch in Benson as a staging area, and that works out perfect. Uh, it's, it's just off the highway in uh, south from uh, Tucson. Uh, we meet there. He has plenty of storage space for trucks and trailers, and that's typically what the guys get uh, the day before. Uh, on the on the March tree, we will meet there during the day. People can camp at this uh, property. People can. Uh, sleep in the trucks or trailers or take a motel uh, down the road. And then on the morning of the 11th, uh, we get on the road and we will be heading for uh, the border at uh, uh, Douglas. Uh, Aqua Pritre is where we cross the border uh, and that's where we head on the 11th. 
Now, what's the deal price-wise for this trip? The price for this deal is $2,350, $2, I believe it is, yeah. $2,350, and that includes the uh, all the overnights. Right. Yeah, and it's, um, so you're March 4th to 11th, 2017. Now, if somebody wants to go on this, they, they contact the Good Adventure Company at good-adv.com. Now, the deal is that you sort of have to, you apply to this, right? Like you sort of make a contact and, and then you guys assess the, the person's riding abilities. Correct. We want to make sure that we take somebody along on this trip who has certain skills. Uh, this is definitely not the beginner's trip. This is definitely not the, the light and the immediate rider or the occasional off-road rider. This is a, this is a trip where you have to be uh, fit and also have a certain experience certain and intermediate uh, high skills uh, off-road riding. Uh, most of the riding is pretty straightforward, but there is some gnarly stuff out there that we want to make sure that uh, people uh, get through. And uh, we, of course, we will all help. And that's part of the teamwork. So if somebody drops a bike or, or gets stuck, we, we stop and we get off the bike and then uh, we start helping. We may need to winch somebody up the hill or we pull them up uh, or we turn a bike around or lift a bike or somebody else jumps on the bike and drives it up the hill or down the hill, whatever the situation is. So, but to, to come back on, uh, so what we like to do is if we have somebody who signs up who has been with us before, there's no questions uh, more to that. But if we have somebody new who's interested, we like to talk to this person and uh, just get a little bit of a feeling from what, what are you looking for? What are, you, what are your expectations? And then we also explain what our expectations are and what what, uh, what they can expect. Now, the thing with a good adventure company is that it's set up to use the profits to donate to sustainable causes. Can you talk about that? Uh, yes. So we have this uh, mission in uh, Batu Pilas as a school with, with all the children. And this is what we have done now uh, three times where we visited. In this case, uh, JJ has done it three times. I've been there myself uh, one time and we're going to do this again. And we donate funds to uh, buy new uh, supplies, new whiteboards. Uh, we did some uh, furniture for the for the for the children. Uh, but the whole thing is is the day's event or the week's event, so to say, for the for the children because they're really looking forward to it. We bring motorcycles into the school, and we wearing all our full gear and and these guys things. We come from another world, of course. Bunch of Robocops walking in there with, on motorcycles, but they love it. And, and we have them sit on the bikes and uh, the, the smiles and, and the returns, uh, what we get for that, it, it's absolutely a uh, blessing. And we bring uh, soccer balls and we bring hot candy and, and whatever we can carry, of course, on, on the bikes going down there. I'm a huge fan of this style of tourism. I think it's great to be able to, to go somewhere and make it a, a thing where you're helping people. I just think it's great. And of course, that's why we get you guys on this show. Well, that's great, Will. Enjoy your trip out there. I mean, I hope you're, you're packed up with people and you have a fantastic time. Yeah, so far we have, uh, I believe we have 12 people, 13 people committed already, uh, uh, paying uh, customers uh, for the group. Um, and we have, people who are prefer uh, intermediate and uh, high-end riding and the high-end riders. And we're going to determine at some point if we're going to ride in two groups or if we're going to do it in one single group. The objective is that we get about uh, 20 people and we're going to uh, closely look at uh, the tracks and the routes and have some alternatives 
for those who get nervous at the, at the rocky sections. Um, but so far, we're looking forward to it. it it's looking good. The planning is uh, we're all up to date. Uh, uh, hopefully, we have the good weather that so we had in February this year, where we had uh, enough dust. Uh, we had absolutely no rain or bad weather. And we had uh, a great, great, great experience. It's absolutely the, the Copper Canyon. You have to see it once in your life. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, we talk later. Thanks, Jim. Wheel Pender, one of the main guides for the Good Adventure Company's trip to Copper Canyon. You can find out more by visiting the Good Adventure Company at good-adv.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. That about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to you, the listener. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. And to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. You realize there's only like, there's only one more episode for the, the year. That's it. 2016 will be gone at that point. Did you ever catch on that when these years go by, you know, they're, they're not coming back. That's it. You did it. You lived it. And it's over. I don't know. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? Anyway... My name's Jim Martin. No excuses. Time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Hey, wait. Before you go, one thing you could do for us if you appreciate what we're doing here, drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the support button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you in the mail. And, of course, if you go up to $50 or more, we're going to mention you on the Raw Show, which we already did. If you haven't heard that, that's a separate show. Go to the website. All the episodes are free to listen to. Just go to the website. Listen to them all. Enjoy. We, I mean, we're happy and very pleased and grateful that you listen to them. Thank you for that. My name is Jim Martin. See you next week. This is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 